Welcome back to another edition of Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Chris Bedford, Senior Editor at The Federalist. And joining us today is Mark Meckler, the President and Founder of the Convention of the States, an organization that's been working for the past a number of years to get United State, uh, the different United States on board with a constitutional convention, something to, uh, something to try and change our U.S. Constitution, something that's generally unprecedented uh, in a way that they think will make the country a lot better. Mark, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you've had a couple of states that have joined here. Then we need, you need 34 states in order to pull together a convention. And in the last month or so, we've had three new ones join, Wisconsin, Nebraska, and then West Virginia. And as you pointed out, it looks like there may be, we're going to be getting some action in South Carolina in the next two weeks, with the Senate having just voted yes, sending it back to the House just to make sure that everything is still good. Um, you need 34 to get here. But, but what is the goal here of the Convention of the States? There's a lot of different folks out there, I think, some of the common wisdom that has been said over the years is that this would be a dangerous thing because modifying the Constitution is something that conservatives are generally push back against these days. They don't like those changes. But you, you, you've been working on this for a long time with a number of conservatives, all the way from the grassroots up to Senator Rick Santorum and the rest, to get this passed. What's the motivation and why, do you, why is it so important? Yeah, for me, the motivation comes out of my history in politics. I started about 11 years ago with the Tea Party movement. I was co-founder of Tea Party Patriots. In 2010, we helped to elect the largest swing class in the history of Congress since 1938. And I expected everything to change. I know, I was naive. And really what happened was nothing. 2012, you get the Senate and more nothing. Uh, and so what I realized is we had a problem that was bigger than just putting the right personnel in Washington, D.C., and I talked to my friend, Mike Ferris. A lot of folks will know him as the founder of the homeschool movement in America, the founder of Patrick Henry College, and now the president of ADF Alliance Defending Freedom, the largest religious liberties organization in the world. And what he said to me is, you think we have a personnel problem in Washington, DC. That's not the problem. The problem is structure. And over the last 100 to 115 years, we've broken the structure of Washington, DC. We've done that largely through the actions of our federal court system. Congress does something, it's unconstitutional. Presidents do things, they're unconstitutional. And then those things are ultimately sanctioned by the appellate courts and then the United States Supreme Court. And we end up with this massively expanded federal power. The federal government originally had 17 enumerated powers in the United States Constitution now, I would argue, if you look at what the court's done, maybe it's 1,700. I don't know. It's pretty unlimited. And so instead of having a federal government of limited enumerated powers, we have a federal government of unlimited, unenumerated powers. And that's really what we're trying to fix with Convention of States. So what are the big amendments that you think are, are necessary to, to actually do that? And we'll also have the popularity with the states to get by. And, and just because so many folks have heard about this, they've seen boosts, they've seen your merchandise, but they may not know exactly how a convention would work and what would be required to get there and then to required to pass these amendments. Well, let's start with process. So in Article 5 of the Constitution, the second clause provides that we, the people, can gather through our states in a convention of states to propose amendments to restrain federal tyranny primarily. That was the intent of putting this in there. We have 27 amendments to the Constitution. All of them have been passed using the first clause of Article 5. That clause says when two-thirds of either House of Congress or both Houses of Congress, sorry, propose an amendment, then that goes out to the states for ratification. So this is the second way, as you said, it's not been done before. In all of American history, the states have never gathered in convention to propose amendments to our Constitution. 
And so the reason it's never been done, very high bar. Two thirds of states agreeing on anything. It's hard to get two thirds of any legislature to agree on anything, let alone two thirds of the state legislatures to agree to gather in convention for what is called an amending convention or a convention of states. So that's the process. The actual uh, uh, resolutions that we're proposing contain three parts. It says that the states will gather to discuss three things. One, anything that would impose term limits on federal officials. And important that we use the term federal officials, not Congress, because it includes Congress, but also uh, staffers and bureaucrats, what you and I would now refer to as the deep state, and also the federal judiciary itself, which now apparently has life terms that was never really intended by the founders. So we want to have the chance to discuss all of those things. Second would be anything that would impose fiscal the Supreme Court. That would include the Supreme Court, yeah. And I think that would be a healthy thing, by the way, Chris. When the Supreme Court was first uh, comprised, the founders, uh, they nominated folks who were roughly 47 years old on average. Average life expectancy was 54. Kind of gives you an idea that they didn't expect these guys to sit on the court for 30 years, right? Mm -hmm. So those folks tend to become creatures of D.C. over time, even if they aren't when they take the bench. They generally are in the first place. So this is a way to actually turn the courts in a way that is more appropriate, more what the founders intended. Second is anything that would impose fiscal restraints on the federal government. We now have a $30 trillion federal debt. The deficit is completely out of control. Debt to GDP has reached historic levels. We don't know exactly when this will cause America to crash. We only know that something that can't be sustained won't be sustained. So eventually it's going to cause a crash. We're gonna need to fix that. The American people are widely in favor of both term limits and some form of balanced budget amendment. I would argue we also need tax caps, spending caps, and imposing some form of generally accepted accounting principles on the federal government. So that could be discussed under the second prong. And then the third, and I think the most important, maybe more esoteric to most people, is a limitation on the scope, the power, and the jurisdiction of the federal government. And what that means is, for example, we could say, no, the federal government may not, may not be involved in education. No, they may not be involved in health care. No, they may not pack the Supreme Court by increasing the number of justices. So there are very specific things that we could put in the Constitution where the federal government has stepped into areas or spheres of power they are never intended to be engaged in, and we could tell them no, and we could specifically exclude them. This is certainly a bunch of like a conservative wish list and a lot of things, but what makes you think that you can get the two thirds of the states to, to agree to that once, even once the convention is called, uh, if you get to that point? So it's two thirds to get to convention, then it's three quarters to ratify. The bar is actually even higher. And so I think some of the things on the conservative wish list, we absolutely could not get done. For example, I would personally like to see the repeal of the 17th Amendment, which is the direct election of senators. It, I think it's centralized power in D.C., I don't think you can get that repealed. I just don't think that's plausible. Term limits, uh, absolutely 80 to 85% support among the American people. That's cross-partisan. Same thing is true for some form of balanced budget amendment. And then when you talk about reducing the scope and power of the federal government, the last I saw polling that goes back probably a year and a half in uh, Gallup did this poll said 72% of Americans think the federal government's too big and does too much. What we know about Americans is, we have different partisan approaches to the problems that we face, but generally speaking, and all polling shows this, we trust local government more than we trust national government. So the key is get the power out of D.C., return it to the states and the localities and let them decide for themselves. Uh, who, who picks these? 
who picks the delegates if this were to be passed? Who, and how, how are they selected? Because I can see that 70% of the American people would want this, maybe 85% want that. But do those, the opinion polls might not decide who's actually in the room when those kind of amendments are discussed. Yeah, that's correct. And I actually love the way they're chosen because it's up to the state legislatures. It's purely federalist. It says the power to call a convention rests with the states, the power to choose delegates rests with the states. And, and that is specifically by constitution, the state legislatures are in control of that. State governors have no say. They don't sign the resolutions. They're not involved in the process at all, unless the state legislatures choose to involve them. So who gets chosen as a delegate to convention is going to be up to every state. Every state will do it differently. What we do know is every state gets one vote. So it's one vote per state, but they could send 50 or 100 delegates to convention if they want to. Now, what, what do you say to the arguments that you, you are frequently lodged against this sort of thing of the idea of a runaway convention uh, where, for example, we, we've seen over the last couple of years with COVID, uh, how, that, how that's worked, how many rights have been attacked, uh, and, and talking to different foreign governments, people who maybe, maybe like the Australians or the Canadians or the English, people who don't have a Bill of Rights, we've really seen a massive crackdown on them, especially during that point, even much worse than we've had to experience in the United States. And when you start to talk to them about those, those listed out rights we have that protected us from the, some of the harsher excesses, they say, we'd love to have done that, but it's too late for our countries now. Our countries have gone so far left that any kind of an opening of this constitutional box will end up with something that's now codified forever, whether it's Roe v. Wade or, or, or what have you. Well, first, uh, and the first thing I want to do is summarize the argument uh, as accurately as I can. And, and this is the argument of the opposition and even on the right to convention of states. But important to note, it's the exact same opposition that we get from the left, from literally every leftist group in the United States of America that you've ever heard of signed up press release saying all of these things about Convention of States. And so it's called the runaway convention argument. That's the, the name for it. And what it states is that if you get into convention, there's absolutely no control of convention. And whether we say these three things are all you can talk about or not, they can talk about whatever they want. And then it goes to the scary scenarios and they posit, for example, that we're going to lose the Second Amendment, that a convention would propose the repeal of the Second Amendment and we would lose our right to keep and bear arms. So as a conservative, the first thing I always want to know, and as somebody who tries to be intellectually honest, I'm trained as a lawyer, so I'm inquisitive and skeptical by nature. That's my training. And so what I want to know is where do the arguments come from? Like who's making these arguments? What's the foundation for any argument that I make? I don't want to just say something because I heard it somewhere. I want to know where it comes from. So important to note the idea of the runaway convention argument, it comes into the American lexicon first from Chief Justice Warren Burger. Now, if you're conservative, you might remember that name and it, and it should kind of make you shudder because he's the Chief Justice who signs onto and votes for Roe versus Wade. And where the argument comes from is in 1973, you get Roe versus Wade. States immediately start passing applications, Article 5 applications, resolutions to get into convention to overturn Roe versus Wade. And they have a lot of momentum. And unfortunately, at some point during that process, Phyllis Schlafly, a lot of your conservative listeners and, and watchers will remember that name, a great woman in American history, conservative woman, fighter for the right to life, has befriended Chief Justice uh, Berger, and they become friends through their support of the Bicentennial Commission on the Constitution. And she asks Justice Berger if he thinks that a convention is a good idea. Now, of course, she's talking about the context of overturning Roe versus Wade, the seminal decision 
of his legal career. And he says, that would be crazy. We could lose our beloved constitution. Really what he's saying is, hey, Roe versus Wade, I'm gonna protect Roe versus Wade. That's the seminal decision of my career. Unfortunately, uh, Mrs. Schlafly proceeds to circulate that letter among conservatives and has kept what I would describe as a fringe of conservatives off of this issue ever since then. The reality of the runaway, and, and forgive me for running on here, feel free to interrupt me anytime, the reality of the runaway convention is it's just an absolute falsehood. Berger got lawyers, uh, professors at Harvard and Yale to write articles in support of this idea. They were attempting to stop the right from using the Constitution to save the Constitution. They've done a pretty good job of this. We have a runaway convention. It's in Congress right now. We have a runaway convention. It's our courts that have been paring down our constitutional rights for literally decades on end without any intervention by the right. And so we already have a runaway convention. And here's the deal about convention. Convention, and this is important for everybody to know, it has power to do nothing, literally nothing. The only thing convention do can do is make suggestions. And then once those suggestions are made, once 26 states agree on a proposed amendment, it has to be ratified by three quarters of states. And the challenge is this, and I've made this challenge to millions of people. I've been on Levin and Shapiro and Beck and all these shows. And I tell people, here's my personal email address, mmeckler at cosaction.com. If you're afraid of an amendment, just tell me what that amendment is. You don't have to draft it in legalese, but just plain terms. And then send me that amendment with a list of the 38 states that will ratify it. And then I'll call you or I'll email you personally. We'll have a discussion. In nine years of doing this, Chris, zero emails. Not a single, because you cannot do it. And I'm going to give you an example. The one I hear most often, we're going to lose the Second Amendment. Remember, if it takes 38 states to ratify, it takes only 13 states to prevent ratification. So this is what I say about the Second Amendment. Right now, as far as I understand it, there are 24 states that allow you to carry your handgun in the state legislature. I do this all the time, anywhere it's legal, generally carrying my weapon with me, and I do carry them into the state legislatures. My understanding is there are 14 states where you can carry a loaded long gun, in other words, like an AR, throw it across your back, sit in the gallery and watch the proceeding. Now, I'm not saying that's a good idea. I'm just saying it's legal. And my point is, so you have 14 states where that's legal, 24 states where it's legal to carry your handgun in a legislature, and you think you can show me 38 states that would ratify getting rid of the Second Amendment? You think you can't show me 13 states that would say, get the heck out of our legislature if you try to propose it? Imagine Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, the Carolinas, the Dakotas, for goodness sake, Virginia is a constitutional carry state. So it's very easy to defeat anything that any conservatives wouldn't like would be defeated out of convention if they were to come out of convention. The Washington elites strike again, asleep at the switch as the markets fluctuate, losing Americans hard earned money. Seems like it's time to look for places to invest with a little less Washington in the mix. How about an asset that's been around for 277 years? I'm talking about fine art. Not many people know, but returns in the contemporary art market specifically have outpaced the S&P 500 by 164% from 1995 to 2021. So it makes sense why the ultra-wealthy have been hoarding it for centuries. But now there's a startup called Masterworks that's allowing access for all, just as investors are looking for new areas to diversify into, too. And how they're doing it is changing the game. They enable you to buy shares that represent 
an investment in a specific artwork so you can invest in multi-million dollar paintings without needing the multi-million part. And Federalist Radio Hour listeners get special priority access. Just go to masterworks.art slash Federalist. That's masterworks.art slash Federalist. And see important Regulation A disclosures at masterworks.io slash CD. So that's something that certainly might, as I've seen some pieces, you've gone back and forth with a writer at the Federalist arguing about this and the idea for the manipulation, the Zuckerberg bucks that we've seen coming through previously with Facebook and big tech, everyone's a, attempts to really change these things. But that's interesting that you point out that the convention itself has no power. So even if you do change the certification, even if you make it very difficult for all the folks who've been working on this for a long time to be selected by the state legislatures, this still has to go back to the state legislatures to approve this? Yeah, that's correct. It's going to go back to the state legislatures and the bar is even higher. Instead of 34 states, it becomes three quarters of states or 38 states. So it's literally nobody can tell you how we're going to, quote unquote, lose our constitution through a convention. And it's just here's another thing, Chris, that I just want to say philosophically that really bothers me about the runaway convention argument. I've asked people like this over and over and over. OK, what's your solution? And they say, well, elect better people. And my answer is, how's that working for you, right? It's not working. For 115 years, we've been losing this fight and having our constitution whittled away. So electing good people is enough. They say, pray. And I say, yes, absolutely, fervently, every day, all day. And I do, and we do as an organization. But I need a better solution. Hope is not a strategy. It's, it's not enough to say, well, there are just other ways. Well, what are the other ways? And as far as I know, and Senator Santorum would say this, uh, who served in the United States Senate, ran for president, Senator Tom Coburn, my dear friend and mentor who passed away last year, would say, if you can show me a better way, I'll do it. And we have a grassroots organization, 5.2 million people. We've raised millions of dollars. We're in every state legislative district in the country. We're the largest grassroots organization in the United States of America. That's an active grassroots organization. Show me a better way. But what I'm not willing to do is what, what these people tell me I had to do. People like this person you described who's been writing against us, who, who by the way, I don't want to name names, but she's been writing against us in the Federalist. She has no expertise in this area. And basically what she's saying is we should be afraid and we should cower in fear and, and we should be scared. These are the words they use, fear, afraid, worried, concerned. And what I say to people like this is I thank God that you were not alive during the American Revolution <laughs> because you would have been cowering in fear. You would have said we should be afraid, we should be scared, we should be nervous. They put everything on the line and, and it was courage. That's what it was. It was absolute, utter courage. And they just threw themselves into the fight with the full armor of God and said, I don't know what will happen. That's up to God, but I will not be afraid. And that's where we come from. That's why I'm wearing the shirt. This is a COI shirt, faith over fear. I'm not going to be afraid of these people. I'm going to be in the fight. I think there's something certainly to that. And it's been something that Republicans have been slow to gather onto, but they've kind of have a little bit more since 2016 for years and years and years in DC, Democrats are always very comfortable using the, the, the uh, machines of government, the machinations of government to try and control different things, to shape things, to, to wield power, essentially. Whereas the right was always afraid to wield power. They would say government's a gun, don't use it. 
government doesn't do the right thing always, it's just force. So if you use that force, then it will be used against you someday. Now that argument started to get kind of tiring to me when it seemed like the left would pick up that gun every time they were elected and then load clip after clip into us. And then we'd come into power and we'd say, well, don't use it because it's dangerous. Uh, there needs to be some willingness actually to get in the trenches. And right now, it seems like we're running out of time, but you're, you're, this is a long march you're pushing. How long have you been working on this, getting these states signed? And, and is there any expiration on these states on their, on their approval for a convention? So I've been doing this since August of 2013. So, you know, we're pushing on nine years here. Generally speaking, none of these have expiration dates put on them. Once in a while, a state will put a sunset clause. Oklahoma had a sunset clause, which means it just expires after a certain amount of years. They removed that last session in honor of Senator Tom Coburn. Missouri had a sunset clause. They removed that last session. The last state, as far as I know, to have a sunset clause on it, let's see, we have Texas has one that'll get removed in the next session. And I believe Nebraska put one in in order to get across the finish line recently. We'll get that removed over the next couple of sessions as well. So it's pretty rare that they have any kind of sunset clause in them or expiration. As far as how long it takes, the, the momentum is here. As I described, three states just in the last month. The West Virginia uh, passage was one of the most extraordinary this was a, two weeks ago. It came out of the House on a Tuesday. The Senate, and it, and it was an overwhelming vote. Uh, I think it was, uh, I want to say 77-14. The Senate president was standing on the floor of the House to watch it pass. He literally walked up to the front, took the signed resolution from the parliamentarian, walked it over to the Senate floor, and with one hour on a voice vote, they passed it out of the Senate. So that shows you kind of the appetite and enthusiasm that's growing. We're seeing that in South Carolina right now. Rick Santorum, I was on a call with him this morning. He says this all the time now. He expects us to get this done. Uh, he's shooting for 2024, and I think that's a legitimate goal at this point. Uh, how do you – was it slow starting to get people to really pay attention to this before you – built up all these volunteers. I mean, how, how did you spread the word and how do you organize all these states? I know I've met some of your team. They're great, but there's only so many of you and the core team is, is a more volunteer operation. And how did you get those volunteers and, and start to get the real, the, really the ears of these legislators? So today, and it seems extraordinary. I was on a call this morning and we had hit a record on a zoom call. We had 55 paid staffers on our call this morning wow. all over the country. I mean, still relatively small when you consider 5.2, 5.3 million people out in the field. Uh, but we also have what I would call our unpaid employees. These are people who essentially work part-time to full-time for us. There are, there are leadership out in the States. I think there are around 2,800 of them now. They've been through training programs. They're certified. They're regularly engaged. And then, of course, the hundreds of thousands and ultimately millions of supporters and activists when we started, there was actually something kind of miraculous that took place. I really believe that God's been in this thing since the beginning. When we first went to launch it, it was myself and Mike Ferris. I described it was Mike Ferris's idea. And I was on a radio program, actually that was a program with Hugh Hewitt that was being broadcast live from Tucson, Arizona. Mark Levin was Skyped into that broadcast or that program. And I knew Mark. I didn't have his support on this. I'd known he'd been against it. I was kind of ambivalent on it originally and mark skyped in and i asked mark a question i was on the panel i got to ask him what he thought of something and i asked about convention states the project had not launched yet and he was flummoxed honestly which mark is never at a loss for words if you know mark <laughs> and he literally said something like i'm uh, well i don't really know and can't really talk about it and that was pretty much it 
Well, while I was on the panel, Chris, literally my phone buzzed. I had my phone in front of me. I had it set just to vibrate. And I looked down, Levin was texting me while he was still being asked questions by the panel. And he said, we need to talk. I came off the dais after it was over. I called him and he was furious with me. And he was yelling at, it was a classic Mark rant, only I was on the receiving end in the phone. <laughs> and he said, how dare you? And why would you expose that? And you had no right to do that. And I told him, I don't have any idea what you're talking about. And he finally calmed down and said, well, I'm writing a book called uh, The Liberty Amendments. And it's about Article 5 and the use of Article 5 in calling a convention of states. How did you know? And I said, I didn't know. I used to be working on this project with Mike Ferris. And so he said, and I'll never forget it, he got really quiet, not Mark traditional. And he said, that's not coincidence, that's providence. He said, because I'm launching this, I'm writing this book, I have no idea how to get this done. You and Ferris know how to get this kind of stuff done. So when he launched, to circle all the way back to your question, when we launched was the same week his book launched. And so anybody who was looking for Convention of States or Article 5 online would find us. And so the organization, boom, it was an explosion I think we had four employees at the time. We couldn't handle the volume. So it was a pretty crazy start. Do you, do you find that you have any change in luck based on what's going on in the country? I mean, under the Trump administration, we saw Republican control of the House, Senate, and the White House. And a lot of the things that have been promised for years weren't done, except for the executive, essentially through executive order. Yeah. Under the Obama administration, of course, these, these things were not going our way in a lot of different ways. Uh, Bush also squandered a House and a Senate. I know that was before you guys were around uh, and control of the White House. Now there's Joe Biden. Do, do these states signing on to some ration a month or these signups have to do with left-wing overreach or Republican doing nothing? Or is it just a slow and steady march throughout the whole thing, regardless of who's in D.C.? I mean, underlying it all, there's always a slow and steady march, but there are bumps based on political happenstance. Uh, one example is we have about a thousand people a day organically join the organization. It's, it's an incredible number of months, so about 30,000 a month, roughly. And we'll see bumps when various events take place. The biggest bump we've ever seen in our entire history was the day Joe Biden gave his vaccine mandate speech. He gave that speech. He's, you know, this is when he turned American against American, blamed people like me who are unvaccinated. We had over 20,000 people sign up that day. It was so huge. You know, it choked our servers up a little bit. Luckily, we had the capacity to flip a switch and open some capacity. But what was interesting, the most interesting thing, Chris, is, you know, I know you're a very web savvy guy. I always want to know where the traffic came from. What did who talked about it? You know, there's no Rush Limbaugh now, but who talked about it that caused this huge spike in traffic? And I was really frustrated with my team because like, well, we can't figure out where it came from. <laughs> you want to and, know where the biggest bump in your history came from. <laughs> right. And the reality is they couldn't figure it out. And the reason they couldn't figure it out is because it didn't come from anywhere. It came from everywhere. There, there wasn't a source. There even weren't even a few sources. It was the American public at large saying, this is ridiculous. This is out of control. I have to find something to do. And they went out and they searched and they literally came to us from everywhere. So when you see events like that, we now expect something like that happens. We're going to see the bump. Did that put you in any of the crosshairs for censorship from any of these different organizations that have gone after that? Convention of the States is something that might not come under that kind of big tech attacks. But as soon as you start to mess with Fauci or, or this or that, they're going to they're, they're try to attack you for disinformation. Yeah, I mean, it hasn't happened directly to Convention of States yet that I'm aware 
Uh, we have been, we did get um, shut down twice on Facebook in the sense that for some reason, two times over our history, we had uh, advertising privileges on Facebook suspended. So everybody who places the ads for us had their accounts suspended. Luckily, we actually, at the time, we knew people inside Facebook, they're not there anymore, who were able to help us get reinstated. The only direct censorship that I've seen on Facebook, and you mentioned it, came when I was talking about Fauci. And so this is probably six, eight months ago. And I do a Sunday night podcast or a Facebook live broadcast. It's on Rumble and other places as well. But Facebook is the prime audience. And there was a mashup of Fauci saying, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, wear a mask inside, don't wear a mask, you know, wear it, don't wear it outside, wear it outside. All the contradictory stuff he had said, it was a five minute mashup and I'd actually gotten it from somewhere else, appropriately credited the person who had put it together. And I I put it on our podcast, uh, our our Facebook live. And the weirdest thing, I was going to be out of town that Sunday night. So we set it up pre- uh, broadcast for distribution on Sunday night and we got dinged before it played. So the algorithm or whatever it is, watched it, read it, said, if you play this, we're going to block your account. And so we ended up not running it. I mean, it was, we had to self censor or we were going to lose our account. Pretty incredible. And it was all about, you know, you can't criticize his Royal Highness King Fauci. <laughs> well, you, you've exposed some of the, the incredible falsehoods that we've been dealing with. Gave me some of the best advice I got all of last year, which was you don't actually have to wear a mask at the airport. I mean, don't you, you could easily lose your ability to fly if you ever mess with a flight attendant or anything when you're yeah. on the airplane. But as soon as you're through that security, just take it off and walk through. And, and I've been doing it since I've flown probably 40 times since we went hunting last year. And I've not been asked a single time to put on my mask. No one actually really cares, but not when I get on the plane, but it was, it's been liberating. So you're, I've spread that word far and wide. I really like it. You know, it's the weirdest thing to me when I go into the airports, I feel like I'm in some kind of weird dystopian movie because I'm the only guy not wearing a mask. You know, you and I are not in the airport together. I wish we were. I'd feel a little better. Actually, I think we did this right in the Atlanta airport together. Yeah. Mask free. And I'm usually wearing a shirt like this or let's go Brandon or come and make me with a big hypodermic on it. So people can tell it's not a mistake that I'm not wearing a mask. I have one that says no mask, no fear. Those you can get that at conventionestates.com. And so they know that it's not a mistake and people just look at me weird. And I can tell who's conservative because they'll walk by and they'll say, I like your shirt or let's go Brandon or whatever it is. And then I look at them and say, you could take off the mask. You don't need to wear the mask. Nobody takes off the mask though. People are cowed and they're afraid. And, and so they wear the mask. So <laughs> You, these volunteers that you're bringing out, I was, when we were walking to the airport last, you did a video for them talking about this. All these folks who do sign up, these thousands, uh, what do they do? What, what do they get access to? What, what is their day-to-day? I mean, is this just contributing to the cause or is it getting on email servers or was it also organizing and classes? Or Yeah, and I think that's an important question because I think folks rightfully fear they put their name on a list and they're just going to get emails. And in this case, yeah, you're going to get emails for sure. Some people do become donors. The majority of people, they're engaged. They click the take action tab. They sign up to volunteer. And volunteering means pretty much anything you want to do. We designed our system. We have all training system called Convention of States University. So if somebody wants to be in leadership and they aspire to be a state director or legislative liaison, meaning they actually are the person responsible for our contacts in a state legislature, media liaison, they liaise with media people like you on our behalf, 
or maybe they just do emails. They like emailing their friends. We have social media warriors that just post stuff or defend our position in social media. There's just a myriad of positions. I think we have 15 official positions in the organizations. Some take an hour a week. And I got people, volunteers all across the country who work as much as full-time or more. So whatever you want to do, whatever you're good at, whether you like technology or don't, whether you want to be on the phone or not, whether you want to go to the legislature or not, there's something for everybody. These are activists. One of the things I say all the time, Chris, it frustrates me about activism out there, especially in the conservative world. If you're not active, you're not an activist. Signing a petition doesn't make somebody an activist. Yeah, you actually have to go out there. You have to you have to make the phone calls. You have to knock on the doors. Back in the day, send the faxes. I think a lot of the offices still have those. This is still good. Uh, still a good way to annoy your legislators. Um, what are the states that you have targeted up next? You know, you, you and Senator Santorum are confident to wrap this up maybe in the next two years potentially. Uh, what are some of the places that you're really expecting for people to be watching or our listeners if they're interested in getting this going uh, can really lend a hand. So high profile right now, South Carolina. I mentioned we passed the House. Passed the Senate. Senate version was a cleaner version, better the way we like the resolution to be. So we're going back to the House, hoping for concurrence. That's the fastest way to get it done. So if you're in South Carolina, that's important. Let members of the House know you want them to concur with a Senate version of the Convention of States resolution. Coming up not long behind that in May, you're going to have the North Carolina legislature come back into session. They're not in right now. And that's a Senate maneuver. We've already passed the House. It's got to happen in the Senate. There's a few recalcitrant senators who really, they don't want to say they're against it, but they really don't want to vote. And so they're working against it behind the scenes, Republican senators. Uh, so we got to get it done there. But And this is really important too, Chris, for the, for the Republicans that are against this in a legislature, they're going to vote with the majority of the Democrats, which blows my mind. And it's important to know who your friends and your foes are too. This is super important. On the side of this effort in the United States of America, every single nationally known conservative has spoken on behalf of it. Every living nationally known conservative who's spoken about it is in favor of it. There are no exceptions to what I just said. And so if you look who's against it, it's literally every single nationally known liberal group. It's moveon.org, it's Daily Cause, it's the Socialist Party, it's every public employee union, it's all the Soros organizations, Common Cause, Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. This is really important. So if you're a conservative and you're watching this and you feel like me, you love your country, and somebody's told you, oh, this is a horrible idea, and it's run by the radical left or going to be controlled by the radical left, you got to ask yourself, if you're against this, how come you're standing with Soros? How come you're standing with Common Cause and Center on Budget and Policy Priorities? How come you're standing with La Raza? If you're a pro-life person, then why are you standing with Planned Parenthood who opposes this? This is really important. You got to know whose camp you're in. If you're against this, the vast majority of people against this are on the radical left. And so we see them in North Carolina, which is an upcoming state. We're working hard in Iowa right now. Same thing. There's a few on the far right aligned with the radical left. So Iowa is coming up. Pennsylvania is coming up. Ohio is coming up. These are states with year-round legislatures. So we'll continue to work past the normal legislative session for the states that are just part-time. That's a, that's a good list of enemies to have earned over these <laughs> past couple of years. Congratulations. Thank you. Where can people find you online and on social media? Yeah, they can go to conventionofstates.com. That's the best place to find us. Uh, same thing on Facebook, Convention of States, Rumble, Convention of States, Instagram, same thing. Just search Convention of States. You'll find us for sure. And they can, they can buy swag there too? 
We do. And, and, and by the way, I'm very proud of our swag. And it's honestly, cool our swag's not about making money. This made in the United States, by the way, we label everything that we can have made in the United States. We try to make everything we can in the U.S., and it's really cool. It's very contemporaneous. Anything that happens in politics, we try to jump on it and react to it. So go to conventionofstates.com forward slash store and you can get all the swag. Excellent, Mark. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. I appreciate it. We'll see you on the next time. Absolutely. You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Chris Bedford, your host. Today I was joined by Mark Meckler, the president and founder of Convention of the States. And until next time, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Today